Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. Luke 5. If you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, you can find Luke 5 on page 860. Page 860. really thankful for the kindness of uh, actually one of the growth groups in the fall back during Pastor Appreciation Month, which that's a little embarrassing that somebody designated that. But, you know, there's a designated day or month for everything under the sun, isn't there? Sometimes it gets a little wearisome, you know, like it's National Corn Flakes Flakes Day, and we're all supposed to remember, you know, to eat cornflakes or whatever. But a growth group actually gave me a gift certificate to get an old Bible of mine rebound. And this, I preached, I preached from this Bible for years and years, and it actually just reached a place where, like, the cover had not only fallen off, and I had glued it and tried to repair it myself multiple times, and then it just reached a point where I, I could no longer carry it. And um, I just have such joy to stand before you with this old, familiar book in my hands with a brand new binding on it and uh, cover and all of that. And I'm exceedingly grateful. And um, I just had to pause to say thank you. Uh, th- that's just one example of how you s- care for our, our pastoral team. And um, we are exceedingly privileged uh, to, to lead and care for a congregation like you. And the love you demonstrate to us just flows continuously. And this is just one little thing um, that's really significant. So I, I just want to thank you as a church family uh, for that, but even share a little piece of joy that I have today uh, to open even to a, a, some well-used pathways, so to speak. Uh, it gives me great delight. You know, moms have a never-ending battle with laundry, don't they? And while girls have their share of spills and stains that need attention, the mud and grass, the grease, and what I would just call mystery stains that show up on boys' clothes never cease to amaze. And you say, where do these things come from? And perhaps an even more important question is, where were the boys that the genes now bear the marks and stains of such mysterious origins? And, and because if you ask them, uh, sometimes you'll, you'll say, son, where did you, you know, stain your pants uh, with this kind of material? Where were you that this has happened? And they'll look at you with all sincerity and honesty and say, I don't know. Like, they're, they're totally oblivious. And sometimes they might be covering up a little something, but sometimes they just, it's the last thing that they were thinking about. They genuinely don't recall where they picked up that stain, that you're both staring at and alarmed by. You don't know how to treat it. You don't know what to do. You, you even sometimes wonder, should I call poison control? This just looks serious. Or, you know, honey, we need to get hazmat suits for dealing with this kind of thing. Or the, the infamous, you know, scenario that parents have faced, it's not only that it's stained, but you realize it's been stuffed under the bed for months What about the stains on our hearts, the stains on our souls? 
Many of those are not even visible to the people around us, but we know that they're there. You know, in 1739, the great Methodist preacher and hymn writer Charles Wesley wrote one of the all-time great hymns of the faith, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise is the full title. And in the lines of the fourth stanza, he runs deep into the heart of the gospel with these beautiful words, singing praise to Christ. He breaks the power of canceled sin, sin that he canceled on the cross. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. To avail simply means to help or benefit. The blood of Christ has helped me, Wesley is singing, and his blood has power to make the foulest clean. I wonder if you can speak or sing with the confidence of Charles Wesley this morning that by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, that you too know what it is to have the foulest stains of your soul cleaned fully, purely, brought to a place where, as we read earlier in Psalm 51, that you can say, I've been made whiter than snow. What a remarkable work that is. Now, Luke, in the introduction to his gospel, told us that he was writing all of these things so that we might have certainty concerning the things that we are being taught in this gospel. And I want you to just continually think back to that term, certainty, certainty. It's certain that Jesus Christ is the virgin-born Son of God. It is certain that Jesus is God come in flesh. It is certain that He has the power and authority to proclaim and teach in a way that no other person on planet Earth has ever had. And today we're going to see that it is certain He has the authority to do some things that you and I cannot do for ourselves. Now look at Luke 5 verse 1 with me, please, and you follow along as I read the first 15 verses. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and that's just a different term for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Signaled to the boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they, let everything, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. 
And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Let's pray together. Father, we are dependent upon your spirit to understand the life-giving, life-changing truth of this word. And according to your promise, will you draw near to us even as we seek to know you and draw near to you by faith. Give us the light of your understanding that we may believe all that you have revealed to us. And would you pour out your power on us that we may be changed by this living word. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Simon is a most unlikely disciple. He's just a fisherman from Capernaum. He hasn't been to Israel's finest schools for training. He wasn't known as a local rabbi who had wisdom to be sought after. And even in this text, though James and John are not mentioned, we know that these are his partners in the fishing business. But an unexpected moment arrives for him, and it is critical in his life. Jesus has been preaching from his boat. And Jesus called to push out into the deeper water in order to catch something that, from Simon's perspective, is not there. Master, he says in response to Jesus' request, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now, the term he uses, master, is actually unique to Luke's gospel. Out of all four Gospels, Luke is the only one who imports this term that no doubt many of the disciples used of Jesus, but it's a little different from the term that you will find translated in English and other places as master. It has to do with one of great rank and superiority. In in nearly every occurrence in Luke's Gospel, it's used by those who are genuinely seeking Jesus. You say, well, what does that indicate? Well, it tells us that, that Simon, at this point, really does have a growing, emerging faith. And you see that even reflected where he puts a little qualifier on the front side of it, like, Jesus, you know we fished all night and caught nothing. But then look at where he goes immediately. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, remember, as we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke, we've heard and seen the reports and even the ministry of Jesus demonstrating the fact that his word carries an authority from heaven. Simon's aware of it. So Simon's response is this sweet merging of a growing faith and a personal humility. And if you think about it, who's the expert on the Sea of Galilee? It's not Jesus. It's Peter. Peter's the one who's grown up in a fishing village, in a fishing family. Jesus is a carpenter by upbringing. He's from Nazareth. Not that he hasn't fished before, not that he doesn't know a few things about it, but, I mean, from the human perspective, it really doesn't make much sense. But Simon, like all those who are with him to witness this, is about to experience another astonishing miracle of grace. And as we were reading through the text, were you not amazed, as I always am, that there's such a hole that it nearly creates its own 
uh, disaster. The nets are described as breaking and the boats, because he gets James and John to bring their boat out, the boats are on the verge of sinking. Who could have imagined this? Verse 9 even records that the people who witnessed this are astonished at, astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Probably had not been a haul like this. The catch of fish becomes a powerful symbol of what Jesus will do with Simon and the other disciples. But there's a greater risk than broken nets and a sinking boat at this moment. And Simon comes face to face with Jesus, divine holiness and his sinfulness. Look at verse 8 with me, please. He fell down at Jesus' knees. Let's pause there and notice that it seems like an unusual expression to us. I had this thought. I, I have no... A basis, I, I can't say that out of exegesis or studying commentaries, but it does appear that they're still in the boat at this point, and perhaps he fell down on his knees because they're up to their knees in fish. Because you would expect him to say he fell down at his feet. That's just a little moment of you know, insane imagination on my part. I don't want to press that too much. The important thing is that this man falls on his face and hands before this Lord. Simon's overwhelmed by Jesus and in a profound act of deep humility and worship, he then speaks to him in very specific ways, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And I actually want to unpack this in reverse order. Simon is overwhelmed by two particular things and I want you to go to the end of that sentence and look at the title that he uh, uses to address Jesus He refers to him as Lord. This is the title that is used throughout the scriptures, the New Testament in in, in particular, to refer to Jesus as the supreme Lord. Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, Lord of life, Lord of all. And in this moment, Simon is profoundly aware of the lordship of this one named Jesus. To date, as we've walked with Jesus through Luke's account, and Peter was right there for most of this, we've seen that Jesus is Lord over the temptations that the devil himself would hurl at him. He's Lord in the synagogues as he opens the word. Lord over a hostile crowd of neighbors in Nazareth. Lord over sickness and disease of every kind in Capernaum, including Simon's mother-in-law who was ill with fever. He's Lord over the demonic realm. And here at this moment, he's Lord over the waters of Gennesaret. Lord over schools of fish. Lord over breaking nets and sinking boats. He's Lord of this man. And Simon comes face to face with this great truth. He's Lord over me. Have you ever come face to face with this reality? You may have heard Jesus preached or taught or read it somewhere that he's Lord But I wonder if you have come face to face with the reality that he is Lord over your life. The Apostle Paul tells us in one of his letters to the early church that a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
The sad part of that is that some will confess for the first time at that day, but not unto eternal life. Not confess to the place where they are forgiven their sins and blessed and brought into the eternal kingdom, but they will confess as they are on their way out of light and life and condemned and separated from God forever. My friend, if you sit here this morning under the voice of this preacher, it is evidence that God wants to give you another opportunity to confess that he is your Lord, seeking the very kinds of things that Simon and the leper, as we'll see in just a moment, found in him. Don't make the mistake to harden your heart against him to say, well, he may be Simon's Lord, or he may be the Lord here at Gospel Hope, but he's not my Lord. He is your Lord. And he calls you as he compelled Simon to bow before him. The second thing that Simon is painfully aware of is not just the lordship of Christ, but his sinfulness. Isn't that curious? I mean, you, I mean, this is a wow moment. Like, this is the greatest catch Simon's probably ever been involved in. But, he, but he's not going on and on about how many pounds of fish this will bring and, uh, you know, that he'll be able to haul into the market and how much money they're going to be able to make and, you know, how they can throw a big fish fry maybe later that night and rejoice in all this. No, he is actually brought to a point of personal breaking. And in that moment, he is aware of his sinfulness. We could also use the word unrighteousness. He's realizing how far short of the glory of this individual. He lives his life, thinks his thoughts, speaks his words. You know, in the company of friends like James and John, he, he likely felt very secure and com- confident, comfortable in his own skin, if you will. That's the way most of us feel in the company of good friends. But if you've ever been in the presence of greatness of some kind and you begin to feel your inadequacy, you begin to sense that I'm weak in these ways or untrained in these ways or uncertain in other ways and you feel that confidence caving in on itself, I think that must be some of what Peter was experiencing at this particular moment. And in the presence of this glorious one who's Lord of all, He's aware of his sinfulness. And you know, his first instinct is actually correct. What does he say to Jesus? Depart from me. I wonder if he has a sense like, I can't escape from him. The best I can do is to convince him to leave me, lest I just spontaneously combust. My sinfulness is so great. This man is smitten with the powerful sense that there is no escape from the presence of the living God, and his only hope is that Jesus would move away from him. But that's not what Jesus does, is it? Look at verse 10. Jesus speaks a remarkable word. It's a familiar word, and he says this all throughout his interactions with people like you and me. He says, do not be afraid. Doesn't your heart rejoice in that? Because the sinfulness that Simon is painfully aware of at that that very moment is the kind of sinfulness we often become painfully aware of. And and we're prone to run from God or just say, God, just withdraw yourself from me. I I cannot take your presence. But that sinfulness is no obstacle to Jesus. And he doesn't honor the request that Simon makes at that moment, but actually closes the distance, if you will. And he says to him, in in so many words, 
I'm not present to do you harm. You're worried that I'm gonna just like crush you under the weight of your sin or condemn you for all the evil you've ever thought or said or done, but that's not why I'm here. And it's a reminder to us, beloved, that those who humble themselves before this God never need beg him to depart. With sovereign compassion, and eager willingness to draw near, Jesus bids us as he did to Simon, do not be afraid. Look at the second part of verse 10. From now on, you will be catching men. And again, you just wonder if Simon's like, what are you talking about? Now, those of you who've read through the Gospels before know exactly where this is gonna go. How astonishing. So in a sense, Jesus is saying, no, Simon, I will not depart. As a matter of fact, I will draw ever near and draw you nearer to me because I have plans for you you cannot fathom. I love the words of Daryl Bach who writes in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, Jesus does not call those who think they can help God do his work. God does not need or want servants who think they are doing God a favor. Jesus calls those who know they need to be humble before his power and presence. And that humbling act of Simon is one of the first beautiful moments uh, of preparation and even, if I could put it this way, qualification for the ministry Jesus will call him into. Another author writes, the call of Peter demonstrates what fishing for people means. Jesus had caught, listen to this, Jesus had caught Peter by a miracle of grace and he commissions Peter to catch people likewise. If we jump ahead for just a moment and think of how God will use Peter at Pentecost to preach a message that thousands respond to, like every preacher's dream, right? That, that catch of humanity at Pentecost, is itself a miracle of grace. Well, how compelling is this grace? Look at verse 11. Here's how compelling it is. When you know your sinfulness and yet you know the sovereign Lord who is your personal master has not come to crush you for your sin but actually transform you and then reposition you for ministry of his purposes and intentions. Look at what happens, verse 11. They left everything and followed him That is astonishing. Could you walk away from an established family business today because Jesus came and said, hey, I've got a plan for you. Some of you have. Some of you will. That's how compelling God's grace is to us. That's the power of God's grace to transform us personally and to transform our trajectory in life. So your natural inclination might be to say to Jesus, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me, I'm a sinful woman. And you're not inaccurate in saying that, but the grace of God in Christ says to you, do not be afraid, come follow me. Let's close the distance. Stick with me and I will do things through you that you never fathomed. 
And so a sinful man begins to walk with Jesus on this day, undergoing a powerful and personal transformation. He will be repositioned by the Lord of heaven to leave not only the family business, but the past with all the guilt and shame he was feeling in that moment when he said, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. No, so remade, so strengthened by the grace of Christ that he could stand in public places and herald the good news of Christ. As Luke told us in his introduction, that he was writing an orderly account so that you may have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. And beloved, we may be certain that Jesus delights to transform and employ the greatest of sinners. Now look at the next story. Go to verse 12. Or we may be certain that Jesus is full of compassion and power for those who are ruined by uncleanness. I don't think it's an accident that these two stories flow one into the other. As Luke continues, he simply says, while he was in one of the cities, he's continuing his preaching and teaching ministry, there came a man full of leprosy. Oh, what a condition. It's a desperate condition. Leprosy was a death sentence, a long, slow, excruciating descent to the grave incurable sores, the loss of feeling in your fingers and toes as the nerves degenerated, the deterioration of the, of the flesh on your body and the disfiguring of your face, all a grotesque part of leprosy. But it was not only a physically terminal illness in that day, it carried with it horrific social and religious implications. Listen to the words from Leviticus, where God long before this had prescribed certain uh, responsibilities both for the leper and the community of faith in response to this dread disease. God spoke through Moses and said, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. One historian writes that the disease dep deprived victims not only of health, but of their names, occupations, social habits, families, fellowship, and worshiping communities. No wonder that leprosy is so often used in the scriptures as a metaphor for our sin. It was Isaiah the prophet who upon seeing the holy God cried out, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean or leprous lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the, the, the living God. Isaiah's horror over his sin caused him to take up the cry of the common leopard, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. That's a desperate condition. And if you return to Luke 5, you see that this man actually makes a risky and humble move. He sees Jesus and he actually moves toward this one, falls on his face and begs him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's a bold move for the leper is breaking both the law and the social customs of his day. He too calls him Lord as Peter had just done. But look at these words, if you will. And I read it expanding that because the text indicates he was actually saying, if you are willing, 
If you are willing, Lord, and that raises an important question for all of us, doesn't it? Is Jesus willing to deal with my uncleanness? If you are willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't say, if you are willing, you can heal me. There's actually a different word for that. And that's the word that appears all throughout the Gospels, both when people request a healing and when Jesus says, I will heal you or be healed. Now, this is a term that actually speaks of more than just physical restoration. There is a strong spiritual component to it. It's a word that means to cleanse the removal of leprosy and all the corruption, spiritually speaking, that goes with it. And what defilement leprosy brought. And this poor man has been devastated in every way. We don't have the details, but it is reasonable to fill in the blanks that he, living alone, has lost family, has lost business, has lost the the social circles, certainly the privilege of gathering with his synagogue each Sabbath as a Jewish man would. Oh, he needs a cleansing that goes deeper than his skin. I think again of the stark and sobering picture leprosy leprosy presents to us of how sin ravages our lives. There's just not one part of your life or mine that isn't touched by sin. And it's particularly painful when it's our sin. What is your leprosy at this moment? What is the thing that not only corrupts you before God's sight, but has also worked a kind of devastation or separation into your family, into other close relationships, perhaps even in your business or occupation? What, what is your leprosy that has impacted the blessing of gathering, even in a service like this? You're here, but you're not here. Mind distracted, soul under conviction, spirit just out of sorts. And it's not because the people around you have failed in some way. It's because you have either covered or held onto or even nurtured a deadly leprosy of sin. Maybe it's some hidden habit. Maybe it's a one-time blunder that's never been confessed. Perhaps it's the accumulation of guilt and the residual shame that you carry for something, uh, something committed long ago. But that thing, like the rotting skin of this leper, just hangs on your heart and will not turn you loose. Is Jesus willing to cleanse you? Well, let's look. Look at verse 13. Here's our answer. Luke records for us that in response to this man's humble, desperate plea, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. The leper took a risk in making the request. Jesus crashes through the social and medical and religious barriers of his day and places his hands on the man. And this is not just human to human. 
but this is holy God touching unholy man. How long it had been since this poor leper had known the touch of anyone. A friendly handshake, an embrace, a tender kiss. But here is Jesus, the Son of God and Lord of all, the Holy One of Israel, as one of the demons had earlier testified. Not just powerfully, not even just compassionately, but personally extending His hands, closing the distance that this dread disease had opened up between the leper and all of other living ones, and He touches Him. And then He goes on to say, I am am willing as he holds him i am willing be clean and luke reports immediately immediately the leprosy left him well we're not as surprised in this miracle as we might have been in the earlier miracles because when jesus speaks whatever he says just happens oh how complete and perfect was this cleansing well so perfect that jesus could confidently instruct him to go show himself to the priest uh which that there's a specific process described in leviticus 14 you should go back and read that this afternoon but it's more than just like showing up getting a little appointment with the priest and he comes out and's like oh yeah it looks like the leprosy has gone no there there is all kinds of of um process involved here where the the priest would first examine the individual outside the city in this case lest he contaminate uh, the inhabitants of the city and then through a very specific sacrificial ritual would sprinkle the man with blood from a bird that had been sacrificed and over a period of seven days would continue the examinations and only after the seven days were completed and no more evidence of leprosy and all the sacrificial ritual had been completed would the priest stand over the man and the priest priest would say you are clean and what a glorious moment that would be here in this case once that declaration had been made the man could no longer be called unclean by anyone he no longer bore the responsibility of walking the streets and roads and warning uh, healthy citizens I'm unclean stay away I'm unclean I'm unclean and I think what a beautiful picture of our salvation for we are cleansed not by the blood of a sacrificed bird And we are pronounced clean, not by the word of an earthly priest over us. No, we are cleansed from all sin by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the once for all sacrifice. And we too are pronounced clean by the high priest of heaven who was the sacrifice, whose blood has worked this cleansing. What a remarkable privilege it is to be cleansed by Jesus I think the hymn that we sang earlier uh, must make reference to perhaps this very quotation, His mercy is more. But the beloved Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs wrote in his wonderful devotional work, The Bruised Reed, and Puritans can be tough to get through, but beloved, if you've never read The Bruised Reed, do it. Add it to your list. You, I mean, it, it's, um, it's available in PDF form. I mean, you can buy the book but you could go download it for free this afternoon. There are many memorable things, but perhaps one of the most memorable things that Sibs wrote in that devotional work is we have this for a foundation truth that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. That's staggering. (laughs) 
because some of you, like I, don't even, and, and you sh- there's a certain part where, certain, a certain reality where you should not go back and catalog all your sins again. What Sibs wrote is not scripture, but what he wrote is anchored in texts like we're looking at this morning. The man that was described by Dr. Luke as full of leprosy, he's terminal. Found there was more cleansing, compassion, and power in Jesus than there actually was leprosy in him. Beloved, do you see here the authority of Jesus to cleanse you from every defilement? To wash away every corrupting thing within you? I wonder if Peter looked upon this scene and recalled his words, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, and thought to himself, yes, Yes, here is the reason I need not fear. My Lord is full of willingness and power to make whole. Neither sinful fishermen nor terminally ill lepers need fear when Jesus comes near. And my friend, you need not fear Jesus' nearness today. In Jesus, there is a greater willingness and power to forgive than there is in you a desire to be forgiven. There's a greater willingness and power in him to heal you of every disease, both physical and spiritual, than there is in you a desire to be healed. And there's a greater willingness and power in him to cleanse you from every corrupting sin and every shred of shame that clings to you like that leper's decaying skin, then there is willingness in you to be cleansed. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Look at verse 15. Despite Jesus' instruction that the man should tell no one, the word spreads. And you say, well, first of all, Jesus, why would you put that burden on this man? Don't tell anybody. Is that disobedience? I I don't know. We'll let the Lord sort that out and tell us. But verse 15, but now even more, the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. That's the point. And some of you sit in in an assembly like this wondering, would Jesus forgive me? Look around you. So many here know exactly this power, this tender compassion, and this willingness. So many here have known the relief of a guilty conscience, of a heart that just carried a a, a weight of guilt that they could never shake until they found Jesus. And my friend, you could experience the same thing. Some of you have been to Jesus before and experienced that healing, but you've kind of turned loose of it and somehow thought that the responsibility lies on you now to atone for your more recent sins or to make amends for the bad things that you've done. And and you actually have kind of put distance between you and Jesus and he is saying, stop. Stop. 
And as Luke said, these things are written for us that we might have certainty. Certainty. You know, this table that we're about to come to in a minute is also prepared in part that you may have certainty. Certainty that the broken body of Jesus Christ is enough. We're not going to add anything to this bread in a moment. And we dare not. That would destroy the symbolism. But as foolish as it would be to pass additional items that we could add to the bread, maybe just a little butter that we would spread on it or jam or something, you know, I mean, which is crazy and and almost seems sacrilegious. And it is sacrilegious if we actually tried to add something to the work of Christ for us. You can't. And the cup, it's sufficient because it, it symbolizes the shed blood of Jesus. And are, are you going to add something to the precious blood of Jesus Christ to atone for your sins on this day? You dare not. That cup is a powerful symbol that all has been done. What you and I deserve for our sins is not a cup of life and blessing. It's actually a cup of wrath and judgment. But Jesus took that cup at the cross and drank it down. And again, symbolic of the great work of the gospel, he trades. He says, here, you take my cup of blessing. Let me take that cup of wrath. So this table is designed that you may be certain there's forgiveness, that salvation is complete, There's nothing for you or for me to add to this. Will you come to Jesus today in order that you might be made clean, that you too might be healed of whatever infirmity uh, perplexes you? Be clean from sinful anger and manipulation. Be clean from pride and self-righteousness. Be clean from lust and envy. Be clean from materialism and greed. Be clean from addiction. Be clean from despair. Luke wrote these things that we may be certain that as John Wesley wrote in his hymn, his blood can and does make the foulest clean.